Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly. Thanks for joining us again. I'm your host, Penny Sarche. And I'm your other host, Rowan Hooper. On the show this week, we hear about a woman whose brain rewired itself when she was 24 years old. We're talking to an ecologist about how to unify the solutions to the biggest problems the world faces. And we've got a great story about cuttlefish. <laughs> and we're also analysing the energy crisis in the UK and asking if China has a decisive advantage in the race to develop quantum computing. We're joined for that by Matt Sparks. Hi, Matt. Hi there. Hi, Matt. Uh, all that coming up. But first, don't miss our September introductory offer. Subscribe now to get 12 weeks for half price on either our print, digital or bundle packages. Follow the link newscientist.com slash September 21 now. That's 12 weeks for half price. Go to newscientist.com slash September 21. That's September 21 to sign up. start with the extraordinary story of a woman who didn't have a sense of smell until the age of 24. It's an amazing story in itself, but it's also fascinating in what it tells us about all of our brains. Rowan spoke to our reporter Alice Klein about it. So Alice, this woman was diagnosed with congenital anosmia, which is the inability to smell, uh, when she was 13. So what was going on? Yeah, so when she was about 13, it was discovered that she couldn't smell. And actually, when people can't smell, it's often diagnosed around this age. So unlike hearing and vision, which, you know, if you don't have, it's quite obvious, parents often don't notice that their kids can't smell. Right. And it's only when they get to the age where, for example, their friends are talking about the smells of different deodorants and things that they realize that they are a bit different. Right. And um, she noticed when she was about 13 that she couldn't smell. And she went and saw some doctors and they did a brain MRI, which showed that she didn't have any olfactory bulbs. And these are the parts of the brain that detect odor information from the nose and then relay it to other parts of the brain, like the olfactory cortex, uh, which allows smell perception. So that's why she couldn't smell because she didn't have these olfactory bulbs in her brain. She went on for many years, not being able to smell. And then at the age of 24, she started noticing a few smells. So she started noticing things like lavender and garlic and manure. And she started having a new smell experience every few weeks, Wow! which, you know, I would have thought would be great. You're starting to smell things. How cool. 
but she apparently felt very disturbed by her new sense and she actually disliked most new smells that she discovered. And on one occasion, she felt so overwhelmed by all this new uh, sensory experience that she actually fainted. So how did she smell if she didn't have the, uh, those necessary brain parts? How did the brain work? Well, this is the big question. And actually, a group of smell specialists did lots of different tests on her to try to find out, but they just ended up even more puzzled. First, they got her to sniff 32 different scents and found she could only smell about half of them. But it didn't really make sense why she could smell some, like orange, mint, smoke, turpentine, ginger and lilac. But she couldn't smell others like coconut, banana, leather, licorice or cocoa. So it wasn't like she could just smell food smells or bad smells. It was just a bit all over the place. Uh, So then they decided to do some tests to make sure she was actually smelling things. So they hooked her up to an EEG machine, which measures your brain waves. And then they got her to smell rotten egg, uh, rotten egg gas and a rose perfume. And that showed that her brain was indeed responding. So then they did another MRI just to confirm that she still had no olfactory bulbs. And yes, she did not have any olfactory bulbs. Right. So she hadn't grown those back, but the brain had basically co-opted another part of it, of the brain to, to take over on the, the smell duty. Yeah, so we know the brain can be really plastic in this way. And actually, there was a a 2019 study by some researchers at the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel, and they described five women who could smell normally, even though they also had no olfactory bulbs. So that does suggest that the brain can find alternative ways to smell in rare cases, although we don't actually know what those alternative ways are yet. But I think what's even more bizarre about this new case is that she only developed the ability to smell in adulthood, whereas these other people who had no olfactory bulbs could actually smell their whole lives. And so have they worked out what's happened in her brain? No. So they assume that her brain must have created some sort of alternative pathway for smelling that somehow bypasses the olfactory bulbs. And perhaps this pathway was suppressed by her hormonal status until she became older but that's really all just quite speculative. Yeah, and another weird thing, as you say, is that she doesn't like that new that new sense that she's got. I mean, I can imagine it being really freakish. I mean, imagine it's hard to imagine having never smelled anything and then you get the ability. It would be so invasive and intimate feeling, wouldn't it? Yeah, and the researchers I spoke to said that maybe you actually have to have positive experiences associated with the smells in early life to find them pleasant. So for example, you might like the smell of fir trees because that might remind you of Christmas and you made that association at a young age. Potentially without those positive associations, you just don't have that pleasant um, experience with smells. And actually it's kind of similar to deaf people. Uh, Sometimes when they get cochlear implants, that first sensation of hearing they have, they really don't like it because it's quite unfamiliar. Right. But they're helping her now, sort of training her to adjust and and getting her used to it. Yeah, so they're doing some odour exposure training with her now, which is basically helping her to learn lots of new smells and to also associate them with positive experiences. So, for example, she's already learned to enjoy some smells, like the smell of curry, by learning to associate that with pleasant experiences like eating. All is not lost then. Um, (laughs) So hopefully it does have a happy ending. But yeah, it really does bring home the plasticity of the brain, doesn't it? It reminds me of one we did a few years ago where a woman was found to have no cerebellum at all and, and basically it got along pretty well. 
I know, and I love all these stories. There's so many stories about missing brain parts and people being able to get along okay. I think there was another one we did where there was a 10-year-old girl born with only half of her cerebral cortex and she could still see perfectly because her brain had somehow reorganised in order to, to give her vision. Now, octopuses are regularly celebrated in the pages of New Scientists for their intelligence and general awesomeness. We had a great video recently revealing how octopuses use shells as weapons against each other during their fights. Yeah, that was brilliant. Um, yeah, and we all love octopuses and squid get a lot of attention as well. But cuttlefish... They don't get the glory of their, you know, basically cooler cephalopod cousins. So let's put that right. Yeah. So there's this story this week documenting some fascinating cuttlefish behaviour. These animals are usually thought to be pretty solitary, a, a bit like most octopuses usually are. But there's a paper and footage now showing that groups of wild cuttlefish form shoals to migrate, suggesting they are more social than we thought. Yeah. Did you see that video? Yeah. Yeah. It's like majestic, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it helped with the music on it as well, actually. It was yeah. Nice. Yeah, so there's these cuttlefish travelling together in a series of formations and some are in groups as large as 30 individuals and sometimes they form this horizontal line but with one cuttlefish facing the other direction. The scientists think that that one might be a guard while the others are sleeping. And then another amazing one is a circle of cuttlefish all facing outwards and our reporter compares it to what I mean, maybe a bit fancifully to what the ancient Romans used to do with that, you know, that hedgehog bristling formation where the soldiers formed a, a tetsudo. Yeah, um, apparently people had heard rumours of this sort of thing, but this is the first time it's actually been formally documented. The, so the observations in this video, they were made off the southern coast of the UK as these cuttlefish start migrating from their nursery grounds in shallow coastal waters um, and head out to deeper waters in the English Channel and off the coast of northern France. Yeah, so it's a safety in numbers sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But I think there's also interesting potential for other things here, because whenever you get groups together for a predator defence, um, almost automatically you get stuff like they navigate better because there's more of them and, and they can learn right. from each other and, and maybe an opportunity for social learning as well. Yeah, so squid form schools of thousands of individuals, but cuttlefish and octopus are more solitary. But yeah, but this sort of observation is showing us that we still have a lot to learn about them. out there are just a few days left to vote for our photography awards yeah a few days remaining to take a look at the shortlist and the category winners for the new scientist photography awards 2021 and play your part in crowning the overall winner they're really brilliant photos you have to see them the competition winner will be decided by your vote from the category winners and will take home a prize of a thousand pounds Voting closes on Monday the 27th of September, so do go and cast your vote at newscientist.com slash public vote. Now, you've heard us talk about the climate crisis a lot on this show, and we do also talk about the biodiversity crisis. As we've said before, there is a need to treat both of them together because they're so interlinked. Yeah, even though there's been generally more money going into tackling climate change than there has the biodiversity crisis. Yeah, and that's obviously a real problem. Uh, this week, we saw the publication of a landmark article calling for the unification of efforts to solve both of these crises through uh, what's known as nature-based solutions. 
Rowan spoke to the lead author of the paper, Natalie Petarelli of the Zoological Society of London, and he started by asking her for some example of how nature-based solutions can help. Now, a typical example of a nature-based solution that can be used to tackle the climate change crisis might be, for example, a protected area. So if you think about protecting huge amount of tropical forest, you are protecting biodiversity, but you're also protecting huge store of uh, carbon, as well as huge capacity to sequester even more carbon from the atmosphere. So it works for biodiversity, theoretically, and it works for um, uh, climate change. Another example might be a, a restoration project. Imagine restoring mangroves in areas that where they have been uh, completely degraded or uh, removed altogether. Mangroves are really good at capturing carbon, at storing carbon into the ground, but also they're equally good at protecting people in the face of uh, extreme natural events such as hurricane and typhoon. So how do we go about doing it? I mean, what's the best outcome for you from COP26? Our paper really uh, called for four steps to unite solution to climate change and biodiversity crisis. I think the first one is really has to do with raising investment in biodiversity, too much investment in climate change. The second one is that you need to get rid of uh, harmful financial incentives. The third point that we are trying to make is that we are in time of rapid environmental change. And therefore, we need the right legislation to support biodiversity conservation in those times of of rapid climatic changes. And the fourth point is really about identifying the scientific, political and funding bodies that bring together the science of nature-based solution, but also that articulate priorities that integrate concern on climate change and biodiversity. Now, if we think about the the outcome we really want for COP26, I mean, there is no discussion. The first priority is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to transition economies around the world to a sustainable low-carbon future. However, the two COPs that are coming, so uh, Glasgow and and the COP15 in China, they also present a window, a, a policy window, for addressing some of the uh, issues and challenges that have been detailed in in the paper that just came out. And really what we would like to see is the COP to adopt the four steps that I've just outlined, which means we want international targets to involve join-up thinking. We want support for uh, grassroots actions that are tackling both climate and biodiversity. We want reform and review of investment, as well as a review of national and international policy to really ensure that they support projects that work for both biodiversity and climate change. Hey, you just mentioned the, that China is hosting the biodiversity convention, the COP15. How much do you think we have to rely on China for both COP26 and COP15? Do you, do you think we might get, are you hopeful that we might get some really strong leadership and action from the Chinese? We need leadership and action from everyone. We can't rely on one person. Everybody has to play its part. And if if we're not happy with where it's going, everybody has to push for more. I mean, you have seen the news that the, the current set of pledges is not getting us anywhere nearby 1.5 degree. So this is not about blaming one country over another. We're all responsible if that fails. It's not one country, all of us. So... I don't want to think about if we don't get strong action. I just don't want to think about that. But I mean, what if we don't? What role is there for for private action? Like we're seeing with some sort of, you know, different startups and different investment that's looking at trying to 
um, look at technological solutions to climate change. What sort of role is there for that, for biodiversity? I truly believe that everyone has a role to play here. So whether it's the individual, the private company, everyone, there is no small role. There's only because as soon as you start to lead on something, show different opportunity, innovate and communicate about what you're doing, you're inspiring others to do the same. So there's there's always a role for everyone. There is no small action on this. What I would say, though, is that all of us also need to continue to put pressure on those governments. Because we do need government to be on board to really tackle. And if they don't, we'll need to continue to push. We we cannot fail to get the type of deal we need, which literally can't afford it. So we can't discuss what may happen if we don't get it. If we don't get the right deal, we, we'll, all of us will need to continue to push up until we get it. That was Rowan talking with Natalie Petarelli of the Zoological Society of London about their new paper. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes if you'd like to read more. Yeah, it's funny, you heard me there asking Natalie about private investment in the biodiversity crisis. And after I spoke to her, the news came out that the Earth Fund set up by Jeff Bezos had allocated a billion dollars to ecosystem protection, focusing on the Congo Basin, the tropical Andes and the tropical Pacific Ocean. Yeah, you mentioned that. And I'm really intrigued by how these particular biodiversity hotspots were chosen from all the others. There there are lots out there, aren't there? Yeah, so I, I had the same. I was also intrigued by that. So I spoke to some biodiversity ecologists about that. And the reason for these areas is you have to think about not just biodiversity, but carbon stores. So it's about places that have high carbon stores or they have the high potential to capture additional carbon, but also, crucially, that are also at risk of disturbance. So basically, if you protect intact forests that are unlikely to be disturbed, that'd be great for biodiversity, but it won't provide the additional climate mitigation that we need to tackle the climate crisis. So the Earth Fund team have really thought very carefully about this to identify places that have both high carbon store and biodiversity. It's really interesting. I I probably would have expected the Amazon rainforest to have been a priority here. Yeah, so so did I. And I asked them about that. And actually, biodiversity isn't so much of an issue there as it is in the Andes or in the Pacific. And it's really important that conservation projects don't exacerbate injustice against local communities and indigenous peoples, which is a real concern in the Brazilian Amazon. Um, So the Earth Fund has been very careful about that. Um, So a billion dollars is a nice bit of cash. And we've also had another five billion dollars pledged by private donors for something called the Protecting Our Planet Challenge. So that's six billion in the last few days. Um, But Rowan, you're the expert on how to spend money to save the planet. (laughs) Is that going to be enough? Uh, No. So there's a UN Environment Programme report earlier this year and that identified a four point one trillion dollar shortfall. (laughs) that's a a 4.1 trillion dollar funding gap for nature um, by 2050 so yeah we need a lot more pledges like this and remember also the other thing to always say is that these are investments in nature they're not payments um, because the money pays returns many times over if you invest in it now and now it's time for our crisis what crisis segment (laughs) penny over to you. Uh, yes, well, it's the winter fuel crisis, of course. Um, it's of course. been ab- absolutely huge news in the UK this week. Uh, several energy companies here have gone bust, and there's the possibility that more will follow soon. So, what's happening, and and how did it happen? 
Yes, well, according to our chief reporter, Adam Vaughan, it's all a product of the volatile nature of fossil fuel prices. So what we're seeing right now is soaring gas prices due to a a shortage of gas supplies. And and that's partly due to outages in production in Norway and some other places. It's partly due to increased demand from Asia. As a result, old power plants are firing up again and wholesale gas prices are up uh, 176% or more since the start of the year. Wow. And and so why is the UK particularly affected by this? Well, I don't know if you remember the UK's dash for gas in the 1990s. There was this big push to switch over to gas so that we could phase out coal, which is even worse for the planet than gas. So that switch helped us to make some early ground in cleaning up our act, but it's left us vulnerable to price fluctuations because the UK is really heavily reliant on gas for energy. So we use it for heating 86% of our homes and for generating a third of our electricity. And if you compare that to some other European countries, France has a lot of nuclear power, Norway uses a lot of hydroelectric, Portugal relies more on renewable and Germany still uses a lot of coal. So the UK is particularly hard hit by this gas price increase. But it is worth saying that this kind of crisis can affect any country that relies heavily on fossil fuels because the costs of these are so vulnerable to global factors that can suddenly drive up wholesale costs. But there has been some some blame put on wind about that we didn't get enough wind this summer. Yeah, so apparently we had our least windy summer since 1961, uh, meaning the energy the UK has got from wind has been lower than usual. But I think it's fair to say that it's clearly the perils of the global fossil fuel market that's the main factor in the problem here. Yeah. Um, Okay. so what's the solution? Yeah, so it's not domestic fracking and it's not more nuclear, which are two solutions that that have been suggested in in some places this week. Um, It's pretty obvious, the solution, really. We need to continue the UK's transition to renewable energy. Uh, But probably most importantly, we need to get our act together on home heating and insulation. So there have been various government schemes, but they just haven't really worked. But there potentially is some good news. It's hoped that a new UK strategy on heat and buildings might soon set out some bold policies on efficiency and low carbon heating. Right. And so that's what's been behind these protests that have been happening recently, isn't it? Yeah, so there's this new offshoot of Extinction Rebellion called Insulate Britain, um, and they keep disrupting traffic on the M25 motorway. It's caused quite a bit of anger and upset. But what I've really been struck by here is is what they're campaigning for. Um, they want the UK government to fully fund and take responsibility for insulating all social housing by 2025. And they want a legally binding national plan for retrofitting insulation for all other homes by 2030. And, and to me, those aren't like overly outrageous demands. These are really necessary steps for the UK to reach its carbon emission goals, although it is perhaps quite controversial to ask the government to foot the entire bill for all of this. Yeah, and while we hope that it all will happen, in the meantime, vulnerable people are going to really struggle this winter with fuel costs. And also there are implications for the food industry, aren't there? Yeah, it just shows how um, vulnerable our infrastructure is to shocks, really, because it's also heavily interlinked. So the rising cost of energy, that's led to two UK fertiliser plants closing down. And those plants produce carbon dioxide as a byproduct of making fertiliser, which um, is this hugely energy intensive process. And that byproduct, the carbon dioxide, the food and drink industry actually really depend on that for all sorts of things. So there's carbonating drinks, um, slaughtering animals and safely packaging meat and dairy. Now, let's have some quantum technology, shall we? Yes, let's. Uh, Matt, 
Right, this is your area, Matt. Um, there's been quite a few bit, bits of news from China this week on quantum computing. And the one that caught my eye was this citywide quantum network that's been running for a few years now. It's, what, it's a kind of demonstration of the technology. That seems really advanced when normally I think of quantum demonstrations as little things going on in, in a lab or a lab connected to another lab. Yeah, so this is a, a citywide quantum communications network in Hefe. It's the largest demonstration to date of how a future quantum internet might work, connecting 40 computers at government buildings, banks and universities all over three sub-networks. But there's lots of very big problems we need to solve before we have something approaching the size and functionality of the current internet. And just to backtrack a moment, the reason this is so important is that, first of all, the network is completely secure to hacking. And secondly, quantum computing enables us to do all kinds of new things, which is is really useful for drug discovery and developing new materials. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Quantum computers will give us lots of new abilities, but they'll also basically break all the encryption that we use to secure data. Uh, And then quantum networks will allow us to retain that privacy and secrecy in a post-quantum world. So it's understandable that many countries see a national security need to keep up with the rest of the world. Or indeed to keep up with China, because China does seem to be ahead of the game, is it? And this is what you've been looking at, Matt. Yeah, so it's it's certainly the case that US firms like uh, Microsoft, Amazon, HP, IBM and Google, they're all working on quantum computing. And there's lots of military contractors working on it too. Um, And the Snowden leaks even revealed that the NSA had spent millions of dollars behind closed doors on the problem as well. But China's certainly up there. When it comes to quantum computing, Google and China are the two teams at the forefront at the moment. Google's Sycamore computer claimed quantum advantage in 2019 using 53 qubits. And then uh, China's Zhu Shongzi processor trumped them in July with 56. And then it compounded its dominance in September with 60. Uh, And the president is putting huge amounts of money into quantum computing and uh, quantum sensing at the moment. In truth, no one's doing anything really useful with uh, computers (laughs) yet, but the progress is really rapid. Um, And Scott Aronson at the University of Texas told me that in the race between Google and China, Google is sort of winning on fidelity, but China is pushing ahead with the number of qubits. So fidelity meaning accuracy and qubits meaning capacity? Yeah, that's right. So we currently have quantum computers with dozens of qubits, but we'll need millions eventually to do useful right, tasks. Yes. That's that's one problem. But the qubits are also noisy and unreliable. So you can have as many of those as you like, but you won't achieve much. That's that's the other problem. Right. So we're still we're still quite a long way away from really good quantum computing networks. And so you spoke to someone working on this in China, right? Yeah, Chao Yang Lu at the University of Science and Technology of China, which is the epicenter of quantum research there, says they're playing catch up and that Google alone has invested more than the whole Chinese state. But it doesn't, wow. it doesn't seem to be holding them back at all. No. This reminds me of that mo- the movie Contact, where they, they build a wormhole machine, it gets blown up, but then there's one that's been built in secret. Is there, an, is there a, like an advanced quantum computer being kept secret somewhere or... or- would it be just impossible to keep that sort of thing secret? It, it probably would. Um, Scott Aronson told me that he's spoken to people at GCHQ and the NSA, and that they're certainly interested in quantum. Um, he even says that if they managed to find a trillion dollars from somewhere, they could probably get there reasonably soon. But he doesn't <laughs> Down think... Down the back could... of the sofa, a trillion well, Yeah, if we yeah, managed exactly. to find that trillion dollars somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but it, if, even if you could find that trillion dollars down the back of the sofa, you, you couldn't ever keep a project that big 
secret these days. I, I think if the Manhattan Project started today, it would be all over Twitter in, in minutes. So, <laughs> you know, we we should say that the country which is which reaches quantum computing first will, will undoubtedly have an advantage, but it probably won't be as dramatic as, as some fear-mongering voices are claiming. Um, you know, the idea of waking up one morning to find the internet broken is, is probably some way off reality. It's, it's going to happen God. gradually. Thank God. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Alice Klein, Matt Sparks and Natalie Petarelli. And thanks to you for listening. Remember, there's still time to subscribe to New Scientist and get that 12 weeks for half price offer. Go to newscientist.com slash September 21. That's September 21 to sign up. That's it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 